And Lord, that is our heart, that you would have your way in us, Lord. Not our will, but your will be done. Lord, may we, by the power of your Spirit, die to ourselves and our passions and our ways and our heart and be filled with you and led by you and in love with you. So, Father, I pray tonight that you would bless our time in the Word, that you minister to every heart that's here. We thank you and praise you that you're here in our midst, that you love us so much. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Good to see you on a Wednesday night. I always look forward to hanging out with God's people. It's a great time. Turn your Bibles to Numbers chapter 29, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. So is numbers good or what? And it rock? Amen? You thought when we started numbers, you thought, oh man, when's this going to be over? Call me in six months when you're done. But the reality is that I love that every single word in the Bible comes directly from God. It's all inspired by Him. And he doesn't, God doesn't waste words. Amen? If He gives us something, it's for our edification, it's for our correction, it's for our direction. And praise God for His Word. Now Numbers 29, I titled the message tonight, The Promises to Come. Because as we saw last week, we saw the first four of the seven feasts that we saw back in Leviticus being given yet again to the next generation. Last week I titled the message, Handing Down the Truth to the Next Generation. Remember that the children of Israel have been heading toward the land of promise, and we know that because of their rebellion and because of their disobedience, they missed out on God's promise. They missed out on entering into Canaan. And as they were traveling, we know they murmured and they complained and they even rebelled against God repeatedly. And they, because of that, faced God's righteous judgment and were not able to enter in to the land of promise. And sadly, they had been delivered from bondage, but yet they did not enter into promise. And God had given them so much along the way. And I just want to say, by the way, tonight, I want to spend time really putting all seven of the feasts together for you. I hope that when you walk out of here tonight, you'll fully understand both the historical significance of every one of the seven feasts, even though we're looking looking at the last three tonight, but also the prophetic significance of each one of them. The four we saw last week were all fulfilled in Christ's first coming. And the three we will look at tonight are prophetic and yet to come and will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming, okay? And prior to, just prior to it. Now, I want to say this, though, that as they were traveling, we saw that they had the tabernacle with them. They had the Shekinah glory of God dwelling above them. They had the law. They had so much of God's glory leading and guiding and directing their lives, and yet they still rebelled and went outside of God's will. And sometimes we look at the children of Israel and we think, what a bunch of knuckleheads, Right? But here's the reality. As they have the Shekinah glory dwelling above them or in front of them, we have God's glory dwelling in us. Amen? They had the law. And they had some of Moses' writing, but we have the completed revelation. Amen? And while they blew it, we still blow it. Amen? But praise God for His grace and praise God that He loves us. But there's so many things I believe we can learn from watching the children of Israel and the mistakes that they made. God was giving them direction. He provided for them physically, and yet they continued to murmur and complain and reject Him. And it breaks my heart that in the church today, so many people, rather than just trusting in God's Word, think they've got to come up with their own way. The children of Israel blew it because they rebelled against God and thought they knew better than God. And too often, I'll be honest with you, a lot of the counseling I do, not all of it, but a lot of the counseling I do is where people think they know better than God. And I'm guilty of that myself sometimes. How about you? I mean, we think, oh, well, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. I'm, I'm on a, I got a special arrangement, me and God. I got a special arrangement. And the reality is, no, you don't. 
No, you don't. Amen? And he loves you just as much as he loves everybody else. But the children of Israel, because they were God's chosen people, they've been delivered out of bondage. He had answered their prayer. They're headed to the land of promise. They rebelled against God, and they missed out on all that God had for them. The same was true for you and I tonight. If we're in rebellion against God's will for our lives, we will miss out on God's highest for our life. We can still even be saved and be born again and have a relationship with the Lord, but still miss out on God's highest. God wants to do great and awesome things for us, in us, and through us. Amen? And we see here, as we're going to continue on now, He reaches this next generation, and the previous generation having blown it, 603,550 men, of which only two were going to enter into the land of promise, all the rest of them died. Imagine the, the, the joy that must have been, marching through the wilderness, watching people drop about every hour and ten minutes. I figured it out. Over, four, over 40 years, if you had 603,548 people, you'd have somebody die about every 70 minutes. So you're just walking, there goes another one, right? And so you're walking around, people are dropping dead all over the place, and you know you're next. You're not going because you rebelled, right? Now the next generation comes along, and now we start to see God working in them. And praise God, they saw the, the previous generation, but God wants to continue to work in their hearts. And so He raises them up, them up, back in Numbers 21, don't turn there, but He gave them victory over the Canaanites and the giants, the very giants that their parents had wimped out. Remember that? Their parents said, you know what, we're not, we're not fighting, they're too big. They're, we're like grasshoppers, we're not fighting them, we're leaving. And we know what happened, they wandered because of it. Hey guys, you may be going through trials in your life, and when they're right before you, Understand that God who is in you is greater than any problem that you face. Greater is He that is in me than He that is in the world. And if you don't go through the trials, you're going to be facing them yet again. And so the, they fight the Canaanites and they're victorious. Then we saw the, the harlotry come into the camp after Balaam tried to curse them and he couldn't. And we saw that some of them turned away because of it and tw over 24,000 were killed. Phineas, a young man, picked up a spear and ran it through him. Again, they got the point, right? And he ran it through this man who has who brought this harlot into to the tabernacle. And the same is true of our homes. We need to protect our homes and not be bringing the enemy into our house. Be careful what you're watching on television, the books that you're reading, the stuff that you're participating in. And then we saw in chapter 26 that the children were numbered yet again, preparing them to go in. Chapter 27, he raised up a new leader. The new leader's name was... That was weak. The new leader's name was... Joshua. And remember that Moses, God had told him, Moses, you're not going to enter into the land of promise. And you can imagine, I want to, but Lord, I went down there to Pharaoh like you told me, and I fought against him like you told me, and I threw down the rod when you told me to throw it down, and I, and I did all the stuff you told me to do, and when I stuck up the stick, you parted the Red Sea, and I led the people through it, and, and they murmured and complained, and I interceded on their behalf, and so I hit the rock twice. You know, he didn't do that. Remember that the reason that God had said you're not going to enter in because He misrepresented God to the people. He represented God of being a God of anger. And, a, and he, God was not angry. Now His heart was broken for the people, but He was not angry. And I'll tell you what, nothing, I believe, grieves the heart of God more than when people misrepresent Him. And we, may we never misrepresent God as being angry. Okay? He's a loving, gracious, and merciful God. Does He hate our sin? Absolutely. When we walk outside of His will and we're in rebellion, does it break His heart? Yes, it does. But if God wants to be angry at somebody, let Him do it. We don't have to do it for Him. Amen? And too often you see Christians going around, ah, yeah, you know, and that's just wrong. That's just wrong. They shall know us by the love we have one for another. 
And when he turned around and he smote the rock, he was saying, God's angry with you guys. And God is not angry. God is a God of love and grace and mercy. And so Joshua was called to take his place. And I love Moses' heart because when Moses was told he couldn't enter in, the only thing Moses was concerned about was the people. Moses didn't say it's not fair. Moses didn't say, but I, you know, I've, I've worked 40 years with these people. I've walked with this murmuring church for th- of 3 million folks, and I've put up with them. How come I can't? All he said was, Lord, don't leave them as sheep without a shepherd. Do you know what I think? The number one thing that needs to be in the heart of those in ministry, whether you're ministering to the three-year-olds, you're leading worship, you're handing out bulletins, whatever it might be, the number one thing is you must have a burden for the people. You must first love God, that's ultimate, but as you love God, you will have a burden for the people. If you have a burden to just do things in front of the people, you're not called. Moses understood that above all else, it wasn't just about his position, it wasn't about his title, it wasn't about what he was going to get out of it, it was about him ministering to the sheep. And he said, don't let them be sheep without a shepherd. And I'll tell you what, that's the number one thing I look for. I want someone who's got first and foremost a love for God and intimacy with him, because you can't minister for the Lord unless you minister to the Lord, but then a burden and a love for the people. And that's what Moses had. And he said, and he raised up Joshua. We talked about this last week. Moses represents what? The what? The law. And Joshua's name also transliterated as Jesus. And uh, Moses could not bring him into the land of promise, but Jesus did. Joshua did. Amen? We can't get into heaven by keeping the law, but we can get in through God's grace, His mercy, and through the, his, the blood of His precious Son. So we come to chapter 29, and, and last week I want to just go over the four feasts real quick because I want us to have them in perspective. The four feasts, each of the feasts, as we're going to see, has both a prophetic or historic significance backwards and a prophetic significance going forward. And the first four feasts that we saw last week, if you're a note taker, the first four feasts, all of them, had again a historic significance to the people that were celebrating it, but it was prophetic for them. Something that was yet to happen, that was going to happen. And they've all been fulfilled, all four of them. Let me go through those real quickly from last week's chapter. Okay, The first one was Passover. And as we saw from the, these annual feasts, they were to be done in addition to all the daily feasts. They were not to take the place of the daily, the weekly, or the monthly feast. Whenever I see that in Scripture, what I think about is, you know, coming to church on Christmas and Easter is not to take the place of an intimate relationship with God. Amen? It's not an annual feast. It's an intimate relationship. And these annual feasts did take place and they were to remind them of things that God had done and to point them to things that God was going to do. Passover, as we know, was a commemoration of them being delivered out of bondage. Okay, we used to be in bondage, we've been delivered. And every year we're going to celebrate Passover to remember what God has done for us. And as we celebrate communion, as we celebrate at the Lord's Supper, we are remembering what God has done for us. Amen? Well, Passover, what they were remembering, as we know, is that God instructed them was the last plague that delivered them out of bondage, was they were to take the blood of a firstborn lamb, and they were to to keep that lamb in their home for four days, and they were to take the blood of the lamb with a hyssop branch and put it on the doorpost and at the bottom, the same four places where Jesus bled on the cross. And if the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorpost, then the angel of death would pass over, and they would be delivered out of bondage. So Passover... For them, looking back, pointed to them being delivered out of bondage. And prophetically pointing forward, it pointed to what? The cross and us being delivered out of bondage. Amen? Because without the cross, you and I cannot be delivered. So again, I want you to see how all seven of these feasts come together. The second feast was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a seven-day feast 
that began with Passover, and they would take all the leaven out of their homes. Now, leaven is a type of what in the Bible? Sin. Sin. And there could be no leaven. They're saying, look, having the Passover lamb pass over and having you be saved is one thing, but still the leaven's got to go. It's not just to get out of hell free card and pray in the prayer. It's not just having a relationship with God and knowing about Him, but it's having intimacy with Him and walking in holiness before Him. So he said, clean the leaven out. So for an entire week, they would make sure there was no leaven anywhere in their home, and they ate unleavened bread to remind them. Now, for them, it was a reminder, prophetically going backwards, it was a reminder of them having to leave with great haste. When they left, they didn't even have time for the bread to rise. When Pharaoh said, it's time to go, they, they left. Right after Passover, he said, you're out of here. They gathered up their stuff, and they fled out of Egypt. And again, the leaven there also, going forward, is a picture of the work again of the cross, because Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. He is the bread of life. And He is without leaven, without sin. And it's a picture of Jesus again. His death on the cross, but now His time in the tomb because He was without sin. You know, they would take the rooms and they would wipe out every piece of leaven out of the room and make sure there was no leaven anywhere in their house. And so too, inside that tomb where Jesus lay, there was no leaven. There was no sin that was there. You then come to the third feast. And the third feast, along with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Thirdly was the Feast of First Fruits. Now the Feast of First Fruits commemorated the resurrection. Because the Feast of First Fruits was a time when they would look back, again in remembrance of what Christ had done, from the fact that He had delivered them, the fact that they were no longer bound, and that they had entered into His promise. But for them, they would have the Feast of First Fruits at harvest time. What they would do is when they would bring in the harvest, they would take the very first of it and they would bring it before the Lord and wave it to Him. And it was to say, God, the first of all that I have belongs to You. So for them, it was a remembrance that the first of all they have belongs to the Lord. But to you and I, it was a, a, a commemoration of Him being resurrected because it says in 1 Corinthians, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the, each of these feasts, again, pictures of things that were fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. Again, His death, His time in the tomb, His resurrection. Now lastly, we saw last week the Feast of Pentecost. We all know, I'm sure, if you've been coming here on Sundays, you know exactly what that was about. But Pentecost took place exactly 50 days. Penta means 50. 50 days after Passover was Pentecost. When they celebrated, they were celebrating because 50 days after they were delivered out of bondage in Egypt, Moses went up Mount Sinai and came down with the law. So they were celebrating the giving of the law. Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus was crucified, what happened? The Holy Spirit came. And we talked about this last week. Just a perfect correlation that Moses went up Mount Sinai when he went up Mount Sinai, the law was delivered to him. The earth shook. He came down. The people were caught up in idolatry. The earth opened up. And how many people died? 3,000. And then when Pentecost came after the crucifixion, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, the earth shook. Remember this? Tongues of fire, right? Moses spoke the truth. And how many people were saved? 3,000. So exactly, Peter, I'm sorry. And 3,000 people, thanks bro, 3,000 people were saved that day. So you can see the perfect correlation between the Old Testament 
and the New Testament. You can see that all that prophecy that was pointing to something that was coming has all been fulfilled. Now, isn't it awesome that since we know those four promises were fulfilled completely, can we trust in the three we're going to look at tonight? Because we know that God's Word has always been accurate, it's always been faithful, and it's always been true. We know that it always will be. Amen? And so as we go forward, the reason I took the time to do this, I want you to see that, again, those first four feasts, and now these second three, that are prophetic events that are yet to come, and we're going to look at the interpretation of those, but I want you to see, again, these coming promises that should be an encouragement to each one of us to know that God, again, is faithful and God is in control. We can rest 100%. So tonight we're going to look at these three feasts. We're going to look at the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. And as we go through them, again, we're going to be able to really take and look and see that there is a prophetic event that they look back at, but also, more importantly for us today, there's a prophetic event that's right before us, and I believe that we're very close to. So first, let's look at the Feast of Trumpets. And I want you to notice that one, one last thing here, and let's look at the verse 1. It says, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. Now what's great about this is this is the seventh month. And what's awesome is that the first four feasts all took place in the spring. And this has been a huge amount of time between those four feasts, and then there's a great amount of time, and then you have the last three feasts. Do you think that's by chance? Absolutely not. The first four feasts all took place together. The first four prophetic uh, fruition of those feasts all took place within days of each other. And now you have a length of time, and then these three feasts all took place together. Now, it says there the seventh month. In the Bible, seven is the number of perfection or completion. And so we see here that these final three feasts are all going to take place during the seventh month. Now, the seventh month again, is the time of when all this is finally going to take place. But what's interesting to me is that this lapse of time between the first four feasts and the, the last three was a picture of the time that we're living in now. Again, it's not a, a major deal, but what the time we live in now is called the church age. And it's the time between Pentecost and the rapture of the church. From what the, the birth of the church came at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, and the church age will end with the rapture of the church when we are taken away. So that expanse of time is the church age, and we're living in it. Now, another thing just to think about. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it says, One day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Now, the ultimate meaning behind that is that with God there is no time. But, in a specific way, just something for you to think about. A thousand years is to a day, as a day is to a thousand years. Now, this feast, these feasts are all taking place during the seventh month, or the seventh time, right? How many years has it been approximately from Adam and Eve until now? 6,000 years, okay? Now, some people even got it down even more closely than that. But we know it's approximately 6,000 years. So 6,000 years from Adam and Eve until now. A day is to 1,000 years as 1,000 years is to a day. The seventh day is the day of what? Of rest. We, we know that from Scripture, we're going to look at it tonight, the millennial reign will last for how long? 1,000 years. If a day is to 1,000 years as 1,000 years is to, to a day, we've got six days, either 
completed or about to be, and we got a seventh day that's coming. Amen? Now, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because to, the Bible's everything that needs to happen for Jesus Christ to rapture his church has happened. He can come right now. Amen? And so we need to be looking up, and we need to be ready, and we need to be prepared, because I don't think it's by chance that we have a thousand year reign. A thousand years is to a day, is a day is to a thousand years. And we've been here about 6,000 years. And I'm not dating things. Let me make it real clear. The Bible says no man knows the day or the hour, and I certainly don't. But I know this. I'm going to be a lot better off, and I'm going to do a lot more for the kingdom if I'm ex expecting his return any day now. Aren't you going to live different? You're going to live a lot different if you know that he could come back any day. You're going to, your priorities are going to change. Your passions are going to change. And so may we live lives with expectancy that the Lord could return at any moment. And I find it interesting that all the three of these final feasts take place during the seventh month. And we also know that all three of these feasts are pointing to the rapture and then that, the tribulation period and then the millennial reign. And so it's interesting that they all take place during the seventh month. A day is to a thousand years, a thousand years is to a day. Just something to think about. It says there on the first day of the month. So the first day of this Sabbath month, it says there, you shall have a holy convocation. This basically is a big word for a sacred assembly. Church time. Gathering together as God's people to celebrate, to worship the Lord, to seek after Him. So they're saying on the seventh month, on that beginning of that, that time of entering into His rest, you are to gather together a holy convocation and get your eyes on God to hear from Him. Now, it says there that you have a holy convocation and you shall do no customary work. And can I encourage you that, that while we don't live under the Old Testament law, God did not come to, Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. And certainly we're not like the Pharisees on the Sabbath. You know, you can't walk more than 100 yards. You know what I mean? You can't walk more. Than, now, that stuff was added, and that's not what God's heart is. But I do believe that it's important that you and I take time to rest. And take time to be with Him. And take time to make Him the priority. He should be the priority every day. He should be our priority when we're, when we're digging a ditch, right? He should be our priority when we're working as hard as we can possibly work. But I also believe there's times when we need to just be still and know that He's God. Don't be so busy and chasing after things of this world that you don't have time to sit at His feet. Because all you're doing is you're missing out. You're trading that which is passing away for that which is eternal. And so it says that we're to do no customary work. It's the seventh month. It's that first Sabbath day, you know, that first day of the month. And they're to wait there before the Lord. And look what it says. And it's a day for you. It is a day of blowing the trumpets. Now this day today is called, anybody know? Rosh Hashanah. And as Rosh Hashanah, this day of blowing trumpets, it was to signify the, the first day of their, what they called their civil new year. They had a spiritual calendar and a civil, civil calendar. It was the first day of their civil new year, and they would celebrate. Now, in Numbers 10, it tells us that they would blow trumpets for several reasons. To gather people together, to, a sound, to sound an alarm, or to announce a battle. Okay? Now, they would do that, and it's interesting in Isaiah 27, it says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and those who are outcast in Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. The Bible talks about in several passages that as the time of the Lord's return, comes nearer, that he will gather together again 
those of Israel. You can see references to the fig tree. You see it blooming yet again. We know that the fulfillment of those things, that people used to try to make Israel be the church. Israel's not the church. Israel's Israel. The church is the church. Amen? And people used to question it because there was no Israel until 1948. If you're walking around 1850, you're like, well, how can that be? There is no Israel, right? Well, yes, there is now. Amen? And it's one of, my, my understanding is the only nation that ever ceased to exist and became a nation yet again. That's because God's hand is on them. And so we know what's happening in, in Israel today. What's happening? The Jews are coming from all over the world, not all of them, but many in great numbers are coming back to Israel. You'll even see people get, trying to get money together to help bring people back to Israel. And they're coming in in such droves that Calvary Chapel Jerusalem's sole ministry is to Russian Jews who are coming back to Israel. Because they're coming in with the shirt on their back, they have nothing, and their whole focus is reaching out to Russian Jews coming back to Israel. Again, a picture for me of the end times. Things are being made ready for Christ's return. Now, the trumpet blowing. What do you think that that might point to prophetically? What would that be? It's the rapture of the church. Trumpet sound that we're listening for, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. The word therefore caught up is where we get the word rapture. Okay? It says, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So the Feast of Trumpets prophetically points to the rapture of the church. Now it's interesting that they viewed it as a time of blowing a trumpet and entering into a time of rest. And when the trumpet blows, we're going to be entering into rest like no other. Amen? Because we're going to enter into the presence of Almighty God. And praise God, we're not going to be dragging these dead carcasses around anymore. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. But more importantly than all that, we're going to see our Savior face to face. And it doesn't get any better than that. Amen? And so we should be ready for the trump of God to sound. And so when they would blow these trumpets on that seventh month, on that first day, they were entering into a time of rest. And again, for us, it points to a time of entering into His rest. Now, we know from other texts that at that time, the Jews would then take 10 days, and they still do, of self-examination. Because the Day of Atonement was 10 days away. The Day of Atonement is now called Yom Kippur. Okay? And so what they would do is they would take 10 days to examine their own hearts in preparation for the Day of Atonement. But here we see as they're instructing the children of Israel as they're about to enter the land of promise. He said, you're going to have daily sacrifices, weekly sacrifices, monthly sacrifices. You're going to have annual sacrifices, several of them, because I want you to keep your eyes on me. I don't want you to forget that I'm your God. I want you to just walk with me and, and be looking for me and seeking after me. And I don't want you to enter this land of promise and now you're going to be surrounded by Canaanites. You're going to be surrounded by peoples of other lands and what are you going to do when you get there? I want you to have these daily feasts so you keep your eyes on me. That's an example for us. May we meet him in the morning and spend our day with him and end our day with him. And so these annual feasts and they're entering into his rest and our hearts are be prepared for what was to come. And so here's the sacrifices they were to bring. You shall bring a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one young bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish. We talked about this last week. The burnt offering was a sweet aroma to the Lord. Two reasons, I believe. One, when we put our flesh on the altar, it blesses God. The Bible says we're to die to our flesh daily, right? And so we've got to put the flesh to death daily. Doesn't our flesh want to be in charge? 
Always. And you've heard me say it a hundred times, so 101 won't kill you. You know, you have the fleshly tiger and the spiritual tiger battling for control of your life. That's a youth pastor analogy. And, and which one wins the battle? The one you feed the most. And if you're not feeding yourself spiritually and you wonder why you're struggling and your flesh is running over the top of you all day long, it's because you're, you're anemic, you're spiritually anemic. You haven't eaten enough. If your spirit's the size of a gnat and your flesh is the size of a dinosaur, you're in trouble. Amen? That's why we need to get up and desire the Word of God more than unnecessary food. And this burnt offering is a sweet aroma in the presence of God. It's a sweet aroma when the flesh is dying. It blesses our Savior. But I believe more significantly, it points not just to that, but also to the fulfillment of the one who would suffer and die in our place. Because it says in Isaiah 53, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you made his soul an offering for sin. Who ultimately is the one that became the sweet aroma in the presence of, of the Father, Jesus, when he died on the cross and he took all of our sin and restored sinful man back to holy God. It was a sweet aroma in the presence of the Father to know that you and I now can have intimacy with him yet again. That's the ultimate sweet aroma. Now look at these animals, and we did this last week, so I won't take a lot of time, but a young bull and then a one ram and seven lambs. Now the bull is a beast of burden. And I believe all these animals point to Jesus because the Bible says that his yoke is easy and what? His burden is light. And the fact that they sacrificed the bull during this burnt offering, which was totally burnt up, none of it was taken or eaten, or it was just completely consumed, a picture of what Christ did on the cross. The bull pictures, again, Christ taking our burden for us, this beast of burden. Second animal was a ram. And the most significant place, there's several things we see about a ram. We know that there were Ram skins dyed red that were on the tabernacle between the goats, the black goat's hair, right? Remember that? And the, the ram skins dyed red, a picture of the blood of Christ. But more, most significantly is the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham and Isaac went up Mount Moriah, and you remember the story, right? And as they went up on the mountain, what happened? They got up there, and Isaac's standing there, and he says, Dad, we have the wood, and we have the fire. Where, where's the sacrifice? And, and you know what he says? He said, the Lord will provide not for himself, the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. And Isaac freely lays down his life. We know that he could have overpowered his dad. He was not a, a teenager. He was probably close to 30 years old. He could have overpowered his dad. He didn't. And I believe he probably was close to 30 because that's how old Jesus was when, he, when uh, his ministry began. And he lays down on, on the altar, willingly laying down his life. And the father is about to take his life, Abraham, when he stops him. And when he turns and looks in the thicket, what does he see? A ram. And so we see here again, prophetic picture of Christ, that Abraham and Isaac, the ram, God will provide himself a sacrifice. So the bull, he takes our burden for us, the ram, and then the seven lambs, seven the number again of perfection or completeness. And behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Who's that? That's Jesus Christ. He is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, the Bible says. And it says of these animals, that they are without blemish. Again, we know that's a picture yet again of Christ because the lamb had to be perfect. And that's why you can't die for my sin and I can't die for yours. And Mother Teresa can't die for your sin. And the most righteous person you think you've ever met in your life cannot die for your sin because they're all blemished. It's only one who is sinless that can take on your sin and pay the price for you. And that's why only Jesus can. Because only He is God, only He is holy, only He is perfect. Amen? 
And so we see here this picture yet again of Christ. And then we saw, it says in verse 3 and 4, The grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for a bull, two-tenths for a ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Now we talked about this in Leviticus. We talked about it a little bit last week. The flour was fine flour that was beaten to remove all the lumps or the imperfections out of it. Again, a picture of Christ because it's flawless, the flour in that sense. And Jesus, again, is the bread of life. Also, it says that the oil, and this oil was pressed, and this oil came into existence under pressure. The word Gethsemane, I told you last week, means what? Oil pressed. Remember Jesus in the garden as he's praying, as he's about to go to the cross? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he sweated great drops of blood as he contemplated what he was about to go through, showing his 100% humanity along with his 100% deity. He felt every stripe on his back. He felt the nails in his hands, and he did it because he loves you and because he loves me. But we see here that the word for oil means, and Gethsemane means oil press, but the oil in the Bible is a picture of Holy Spirit, anointing, right? And so we see here this oil mixed with the flour, the bread and the oil, that's Jesus, amen? The perfect bread of life and the oil anointed, the Holy Spirit came upon him, right? And so it's a picture yet again of our Savior. Verse 5, also one kid of goats is a sin offering to make atonement for you. And again, we talked about this last week, but because some of you weren't here, the kid of goats, remember again that this is a sin offering now, not a burn offering. A sin offering, part of it was sacrificed, part of it was given to the priest, and part of it was eaten by the person who offered it. Now, understand that in those days they had an offering where they, what they called a scapegoat. They would confess the sins of the people over the goat, they would take it out into the wilderness and they would set it free. Again, and they always set it out from the east to the west. And it says in the Bible that he separates our sin as far as the east is from the west. And so the sin would go away and confessed. But in this case, this animal was sacrificed. And this animal was sacrificed, a portion of it was eaten. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will not have life in yourself. It's not just knowing about Jesus, but it's Jesus in you. Amen? Just like having the lamb's blood at Passover wasn't good enough. They could kill the lamb, they could have the blood in a bucket, they could have it sitting in their house, but if they didn't take the blood and apply it to the doorpost, the angel of death was coming in. And if we don't take the blood of Christ and apply it to our own lives, then we too will not be saved. And so we see here again, and that, some people go, man, that's just, that's kind of gross. You know, eating body. You know what? Taking Christ, it's just a picture of taking more than just, again, not a surface relationship, not even standing near him, but his Holy Spirit dwelling in me. Amen? That's a picture of someone who's given their life to the Lord. Verse 6. Besides the burnt offering with his grain offering for the new moon, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering, and the drink offerings according to the ordinance as a sweet aroma, offering made by fire to the Lord. We know the drink offering was wine. Wine was a picture of the blood of Christ. And I want to say this too, that these offerings were in addition, again, to all the other offerings. Now the second thing, the second offering, along with this Feast of Trumpets, which points to what? The rapture of the church. Okay? Trump will sound. How long, how long will between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Christ? Those are two different things, by the way. Some people get those mixed up. Some people think that the second coming and the rapture, they're not. Because we're out of here, and how long are we gone for? Seven years. And at the end of seven years, we're going to return with the Lord. Okay? And then we're going to, he's going to set up a millennial kingdom. We'll reign with him for a thousand years. There'll also be a battle. 
And those of you who went to Israel, you know exactly where that's going to take place. Verse 7. On the tenth day of the seventh month, so ten days later, you shall have a holy convocation, you shall afflict your, soul, your souls, and you shall do no work. So this, even today, this day, Yom Kippur, is the holiest of all days to the Jewish people. There is no more holy day than the Day of Atonement. This is also the only day when the high priest could go in to the Holy of Holies and take the blood of the Lamb and sprinkle it onto the mercy seat. Seven times, number completion, number perfection. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And so he'd go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, mercy seat covering the law. And so what would happen, again, is that that was the only time he could go in. And it's interesting that the only one who did work, it says there, do not do any work. The only one who did work on that day, according to the Leviticus portion of this, was the high priest. The high priest was the only one who went in. And we know from Leviticus that he would take off his priestly robes and set them aside, his beautiful purple robes. If you guys were here in Leviticus, remember all the pomegranates and all the stuff he had on them, they were beautiful. And the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of that would come off and he would wear plain linen. And then he would enter in, in this linen, and, and go in and make the sacrifice. Now, what's that a picture of? It's a picture of Jesus Christ laying aside his royal robes in heaven, taking on humanity, and coming to earth. When Jesus was born, he was wrapped in linen, swaddling clothes. And when he died, he was wrapped in linen. And it's not by chance that the high priest who went in on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was wearing only linen. Again, you got to love the Bible. It rocks. Amen? you got to love just how perfectly all of it fits together. And people say, I've read the Bible. You know, no, you haven't. No, you haven't. Because if you have, you'd be a Christian. Amen? If you truly read it, and you were truly seeking to know God. Now, it says here, afflict your souls. Now, I want you to understand that this was not a time of celebration as much as a time of self-examination. And we've talked about the fact that without conviction, there can be no conversion. So they would take this time to reflect on the fact that, yes, indeed, I'm a sinner. If I do not see that I'm a sinner, I will never see a need for a Savior. That's why I'm not afraid to tell you guys you're sinners and, and, and admit openly that I am. Amen? And so they would afflict their souls. They would examine their own hearts and their own lives to say, yeah, I've fallen short. And that's why I desperately need this day of atonement. I love the fact, though, that also says here again, do no work, because only the high priest was the one that made the sacrifice on that day. Why is that? Because Jesus alone paid the price for your sin. Yom Kippur, again, points to the cross, but it also points to something else for the Jews, and we'll talk about that. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year, they shall be without blemish. I'm on the wrong verse. Verse 8, I was on verse 13, what am I thinking? You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma, one young bull, one ram, seven lambs of the first year, be sure they are without blemish. Their grain offering shall be of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one kid of goats as a sin offering, besides a sin offering for atonement, and the regular burnt offerings with grain offering and their drink offerings. One thing you'll notice is that on the Feast of Trumpets and also on Yom Kippur, the offering is exactly the same. The only difference is that on Yom Kippur, only the high priest was the one that did all of it. He had no help. 
None of the other priests did any of the sacrificing. He did all of it. He was the only one that entered into the Holy of Holies. Nobody else could. And it only happened on this one day. And, it ha- and he had to have the, ins- the right incense from the right censer. And he had to have the right blood. Why? Because it's only Christ that can save us. And any, you know, remember when Nadab and Abihu went in there? Remember that? What happened? They got, they got smoked, right? Because they went in on the wrong day. They went in with the wrong heart. They went in with the wrong censer. They went, and the two of them went in together. And there's only one way to get to heaven. Jesus is the only way. And so they misrepresented God, much like Moses had, but in a much worse way. And so we see here that this picture, this sacrifice, though identical, was a picture of the cross because, again, only the high priest could do it. But also we see that it's something else, too. For the Jews, it's a picture of a, a, the time of tribulation because it says what? Afflict your souls. Be examining your hearts and understand that you are sinners and understand your need for atonement. You know what's going to happen during the seven-year tribulation like no other time in history? The Jews are going to be examining their souls. There, you know, there's going to be a time of peace, but ultimately they're going to realize they've been duped. The abomination of desolation, the Antichrist is going to go in, proclaim himself to be God. He's going to, he's going to defile the temple, and they're going to realize we missed him. And they're going to look, ultimately look on him whom they have pierced. And they're going to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. And we know that there's going to be a mass number of Jews that are going to come to know Christ during that time. And so we see that the Feast of Trumpets is a picture of the rapture. And as they afflict their souls, afflict their souls during this time, it's a picture of the tribulation. All right? Last feast, verse 12. There's a lot of uh, verses on this, but I want you to see... As we go through verse 12, on the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work and you shall keep a feast to the Lord seven days. This feast is called the feast of tabernacles or the feast of in gathering. Now to the Jews, this where where the, the previous feast, Yom Kippur is the holy day. This was referred to as the holiday. This was when they celebrated. This was when, okay, we've gone through this atoning work, and now our sins have been paid for, atoned for, and now we're going to rejoice in the fact of all the blessings that God has given us, and now we're going to rejoice for a great, and that's what they do. And you're going to see here as we go through these feasts, uh, or through uh, the sacrifices, the amount of sacrifice is incredible, but they're doing it in rejoicing. This is a time of rejoicing. Where the other one was affliction of their soul, this is a time of rejoicing, a feast of celebration. Again, at the end of the, the harvest season, remembrance of God's provision for them when they wandered in the wilderness. Now, offerings during this time, again, were the most elaborate of the entire year, looking back again at God's faithfulness to provide for them. Let's read through some of this. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year. They shall be without blemish. You'll notice that every sacrifice without blemish their grain offering shall be of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and one-tenth for each of the fourteen lambs. Also, one kid of the goats is a sin offering. Besides a regular burnt offering, it is a grain offering, it is a drink offering. Now, each day you're going to see that the amount that they give is altered a little bit, but by the time they're done, the amount that they have sacrificed is incredible. But again, it's in rejoicing. And what we're going to see as we go through these verses, it's the time of greatest giving and the, uh, giving, and the priest actually offered over 200 sacrifices during the week. Think about that. 
That's a full-time job. Amen? I mean, you're, what are you doing? I'm, I'm going to be 200 sacrifices this week, right? And, that's, and you know what? The reality is that as priests, their heart should have been full-time on doing God's work. Now it says here, the burnt offering, we'll see a burnt offering, a grain offering, sacrifices, drink offerings, Sabbath offerings, gifts, vows, free will offerings. And you might say to yourself, why so many sacrifices? Why such an expensive sacrifice? Because it is a demonstration of the richness of God's provision to the years in the wilderness. On the second day, present 12 young bulls, and, and so on. Down to the third day, verse 20, present 11 young bulls. On the fourth day, present 10 bulls. On the fifth day, present 9 bulls. Verse 29, on the sixth day, present 8 bulls. And, and we see that the, the amount that they gave declined each day. But again, I love the fact that it was specific. It was to keep them in a place of constant sacrifice during this entire time. That they would constantly remember God's provision for them, God's blessing upon them. May we never take for granted what God has done for us. May we never take it lightly. May we never just make it a part of our life and file it away and just go live like the world. May we constantly be desperate for Him, constantly offering ourselves to Him, constantly coming before Him, morning and evening. Now these sacrifices, all these huge numbers of sacrifices going on, were in addition to the daily and the weekly and the monthly. They were serious. Amen? And this is God giving them these directions. Now during this time, again, they would be rejoicing at the bountiful harvest. And just think how much they must have had just to be able to sacrifice all of this. Think about how much there must have been for them to give with this kind of liberality. God had blessed them greatly. And God said, you give and you remember where it came from and you keep your eyes on me. Verse 32, on the seventh day present seven bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs, in the first year without, without blemish. Verse 35, on the eighth day you shall have a sacred assembly and you shall do no, no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord. One bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Now you'll notice it's the same over and over. One bull, one ram, seven lambs. They knew it. You know what though? Again, it could become common. And we've got to be sure the same thing can happen to us. We can come here on Sunday and we can come here on Wednesday and all right, we're going to sing four worship songs, and then someone's going to do announcements, and we're going to sing another worship song, and then the kids, are, the kids are going to leave, and then Pastor Dave's going to talk till my rear end falls asleep on these metal chairs, and, <laughs> and then I'm going to get him talk to a few people, and I'm going to go home, right? And we can, just, we can start making church this mundane thing. And my heart would be that we would come with anticipation that we're meeting the Lord here. Amen? That He's ministering to us. That when we come, we want to worship. Is He worthy to be worshiped? Absolutely. So we should come with anticipation. And these sacrifices were awesome because it was a great opportunity for them to come continually before the Lord. You know, we can be that way with God. We can either look at it with anticipation and see it as a blessing that we get to open up His Word, or we can look at it as drudgery. They could come with those sacrifices and go, oh man, seven more lambs again? Man, we don't, you know? Or they could say, oh Lord, you've blessed us so much. What a blessing. What a privilege. It is to sacrifice unto you that which you've already given me. What a blessing, what a privilege it is to open up the Bible and read the living, breathing Word of God, God's love letter to me. Not, oh, yeah, I didn't read my chapter today. Where am I? Where's my thing? Oh, that's right. I'm in Numbers, right? You know, the reality is we should look, open up the Bible with anticipation and blessing of what God has done for us. This was a time of great rejoicing, again, for God's provision. Now, what we know about this time as they're making these sacrifices when you look in Leviticus, that during this time, something else happened once they moved to the land of promise. They would leave and go out and dwell in what? In booths, 
in temporary tents. And you know why they did that? They did that to remember how they lived when they were in the wilderness. God wanted them to remember where they had come from and how He had blessed them. I also believe it was a great opportunity. Can you imagine if you did that every year with your children? Every year, kids, all right, we're going camping for a week. They'd be like, yeah, you know, feast the booth, yeah, right? We're going to go, I, I, I confess to you openly, I'm not a camper. I don't get it, personally. I just don't get it. My wife struggles with me because I don't get it. I say, babe, why do we save up for 51 weeks to go be homeless for a week? I don't understand that. <laughs> I don't get it, right? But, hey, some people like sleeping on dirt. God bless you, all right? But here's the thing. They would take them out for a week. And can you imagine you're out there, you leave the, the, you know, where you're living in the land of promise, and you go out and you're sleeping in, in booths. And you're looking up at the stars at night. And the kids, no doubt, would, what a great opportunity to say, you know why we do this? Because we wandered in the wilderness. God delivered us out of bondage. He brought us to the land of promise. He provided for us along the way. And now we're in the land of promise with Him. Right? We're the place that He provided for us. You know what? Shouldn't Christmas and Easter and every other holiday and every opportunity, certainly we need to share our, with our kids more often than that, but I hope that none of your kids think that Easter is about the Easter bunny. Amen? And I hope they don't wake up on Christmas looking for a big fat guy wearing a red suit. Amen? We should wake up going, it's Jesus' birthday. Amen? And we should be pointing our kids back to what happened on that day. And Easter, Resurrection Sunday, Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? Instead of, where's my bonnet? Let me go find some eggs, right? They're rotten when you eat them anyway, so don't bother, right? So the reality is that this was a time of remembrance of God's deliverance. And so too should we have a time of remembrance of what God has done for us. And the, the most ultimate, again, while we have holidays, the most ultimate, I believe, is the Lord's Supper. That's a time when we do, the, as Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in what? Remembrance of me. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're doing it in remembrance, and may it not grow common. May it not be a ritual. May it be time seeking God's face. During that time, they would be encamped near the temple, and they would talk again to that next generation. Now, during this Feast of Tabernacles, it finishes off there in verse 38. So the grain offering, the drink offerings for the bull, the ram offerings, and one goat as a sin offering besides a regular burnt offering, a grain offering, and a drink offering. This Feast of Tabernacles was the greatest of all celebrations, a time of great joy. The feast at the end of harvest season. Jesus said, look up. What has He said? And the field is what? White for the what? Harvest. When does the harvest end? That's right. Amen. And he's saying, I believe, again, this is a picture. They're celebrating that they've brought in the fruit of the harvest. And the fruit of the harvest has now been gathered together. And now they're celebrating the fruit. They're, they're rejoicing. And so too it is with us as I believe that the Feast of Tabernacles points to the Millennial Kingdom. It, it's during that time when we remember that we once dwelt in what? Temporary booths, right? Houses. And now we've entered into His presence. The tribulation time has come. That time of affliction of souls for the Jews. We've gone away. We've now come back. And He's going to set up. We're going to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years on the earth. A thousand years is to a day as a day is to a thousand years. Praise the Lord. Got to love it. Historically, deliverance in the, in the wilderness, prophetically, millennial reign of Christ, no longer dwelling in tents. Verse 39. Then you shall present to the Lord 
at your appointed feast, besides your vowed offerings, your freewill offerings as your burnt offerings, and your grain offerings as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. What's interesting to me is, I'm going to read to you in a minute how many offerings they had, but what's interesting to me is with all the offerings that they gave that were required by God, he still said, bring freewill offerings. And I believe that, again, that's another thing missing in the church today, is don't give out of obligation. Give because you want to. Amen? You know what? I love to give to my kids because I just love them so much I can't hardly stand it. You know what I mean? And I just love to bless them when I can. But you know what? I love the Lord more, and I love what He's done for me. And I love to say, Lord, it's yours. And ultimately, what we want to give Him is not just our finances or our time, but I've told you this before, too. There was a man I met one time that said, you know, when the plate went by, I just wanted to put myself in the plate. You know, Lord, I, I, my money's not enough. My time's not enough. Here, take me. Take me. You know what? That's, that's the heart of somebody who really understands what Christ has done for him. Amen? It's, Lord, I give you my life. Not just three hours a week. Not, and again, you know here, we don't emphasize you giving money. We don't even pass an offering. You give not because somebody twists your arm or somebody manipulates you. You give out of your love for the Lord. You say, Lord, I love you and I want to give to you the first fruits of what I have. Not give him the rest, give him the best. Amen? The best of my time. The best of my, that's why I love to read in the morning. Right when you wait, you know, first thing, right? Spend time with the Lord. Greet him early in the morning. And so Moses and the children of Israel, verse 40. So Moses told the children of Israel everything, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And I love this because Moses has been told what? You're not going. They're all going, you're staying here. And Moses said, bring them a shepherd. And they raised up Joshua. And then he said, I want you to go and command them. And Moses didn't say, well, I'm not going. Tough for them. I'm taking my ball. I'm going home. Right? And often we do that, even in ministry. You know, or in, in life, we'll say, well, if I'm not going to be blessed, then I don't want anybody else to be. You know? Anybody else ever done that besides me? Right? The Bible says, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. And often we weep with those who rejoice and rejoice with those who weep. Right? We're like, good. No, well, I'm not the only one. You know? And the Lord, and we see here Moses' heart that he just loves the sheep and he's faithful to deliver to them the word of the Lord. And that's what every pastor ought to do. Deliver to the people the word of the Lord, not the opinions of men. Amen? What I think is irrelevant. What does the Bible say? Amen? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Dave. No, I don't think so. The words of the real eloquent guy, right? The seven steps, the four passions, the five things, the three, you know. We don't need any of that. We don't need 40 days of purpose. I want to have 365 days of purpose. How about you? Amen? And God's word is sufficient. And this is it. The Bible. You know what? When I get this mastered, I'll start looking at other books, but uh, that's not going to happen. Amen? There's 66 books right here that we need to study and know. Before I start, and again, I'm not saying you can't read Christian books or anything like that. But understand, those are vitamins. Amen? You know what? If you only eat vitamins, what happens to you? You die. Amen? This, well, for me, maybe not for Patrick, this is meat and potatoes right here. Amen? I'm not picking on Pat. I love him. But this is meat and potatoes, and this is what you survive on, and the other stuff is vitamins. Now, if you've had enough meat and potatoes and you want to grab some vitamins too, that's okay. But you can't live on that other stuff. This is what you live from. Amen? And this is where you grow. And Moses was faithful to deliver to them the word of God. 
And, it, and now, I want, I want you to see this lastly. Let me read how many sacrifices. Just in these last two chapters. In these last two chapters, it cost them to be obedient. And what it cost them was 1,086 lambs, 113 bulls, and 32 rams, with more than a ton of flour and over 1,000 bottles of oil and wine. Now, it required them to make a sacrifice. These are folks eating manna, right? And they're killing lambs. Now, do you think there weren't a few folks upset about that? These were burnt offerings, which means what? Consumed. They weren't bringing anything back home. It was, okay, go sacrifice the seven lambs and grab some manna, right? The reality was that they were sacrificing and giving the meat unto the Lord, and they had manna for themselves. They were giving God the best, amen? Now, Interestingly enough, that the most prominent animal, again, is the lamb, because Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this does not even include all their regular sacrifices. During the days of Jesus, on one single Passover, there was 255,600 lambs sacrificed in one day. The, the brook Kidron was flowing, filled with blood, when Jesus went across it on Passover. And again, that's not by chance that the blood of lambs was flowing when the Lamb of God was brought, came across it to be crucified. And so we know that, that, that even though there was 255,600 lambs, none of these hundreds of thousands of sacrifices was enough. It doesn't matter. You could, have, you could sacrifice 20, 250 million lambs, and it wouldn't be enough. Because the sacrifices did not take away sin. They pointed to the one who would. Amen? All of these sacrifices were pointing to the one who would come and who would be the fulfillment. And that's why we see Jesus, Jesus, Jesus on every page in the Old Testament because all of it is pointing them to the one who would come. So in review, the first four feasts that were in the springtime was Passover, picture of God's delivering them out of bondage in Egypt and our deliverance from sin at the cross. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, a picture of their hasty departure out of Egypt. A picture of Christ in the tomb, sinless, unleavened. The Feast of First Fruits, they gave God their first. It's a picture of the resurrection. And then Pentecost, the giving of the law to them, remembering that, and pointing towards the giving of the Holy Spirit or the birth of the church. So prophetically, the Passover pointed to the cross, unleavened bread pointed to the tomb, the first fruits pointed to the resurrection, and Pentecost pointed to the coming of the Holy Spirit. These three fall feasts, a great amount of time has passed. Picture the church age. Now we enter into these three final feasts that all come in the seventh month and will be fulfilled in Christ's second coming. The first is the Feast of Trumpets. It was a time of them, for them of self-examination. And for us, it points to the what? The rapture of the church. The Day of Atonement was a picture, again, for us, of the, uh, for them, the atoning work of the Messiah that would come. But also going forward, it was a picture of the tribulation. It was a time of self-examination for them as well when they looked upon themselves and realized they were sinners. And then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles was a picture of God's provision for them as they made these huge sacrifices. And for us, it's a picture of the millennial reign with heaven to come. Don't you love the Old Testament? The book of Numbers, Jesus is all over it. It's a great book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You for Your Word. And we thank You that it is living and breathing and sharper than a two-edged sword. And we thank You that as we read Your Word, that it ministers to our hearts. Even as we look at 
instructions to the children of Israel as they were about to enter into the land of promise. We so clearly see application for our lives several thousand years later. Lord, I pray as we are entering in, I believe, to, to that seventh day, we're drawing near, Lord, to your millennial reign, your soon return. Father, I pray there be a sense of urgency in our hearts for those who don't know you, a sense of urgency in our own hearts to walk in, in intimacy with you, to be the men and women of God you've called us to be, Lord. So, Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you that on the Day of Atonement that the, great high priest, that the high priest did all the work and that you, the great high priest, did all the work for us. We thank you that it is finished. And we thank you that we've been forgiven. Help us, Lord, to walk in holiness before you. And Lord, to, again, be, as we talked about on Sunday, be the moon and reflect the sun. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.